Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, would you please open up and join me in Acts chapter 20. We are in Acts chapter 20, and as you're turning there, I want to set the context, and just by way of reminder, especially if you're visiting, we're in the middle of a series called Ecclesia, Features of a Faithful Church, and it's a doctrinal series. We're, we're asking, what does the Bible tell us are the hallmarks and essential features of a healthy church? We've taken a break over the Resurrection Sunday holiday uh, and more, and so we're jumping back into the series. And we've been taking different subtopics along the way. So kind of each week, picking up a puzzle piece, putting it in to get that larger mosaic, to mix the metaphor of what the church is to look like. And so we have spent time looking at the church in the unfolding plan of the Bible and the New Covenant. We spent a number of weeks looking at the significance of the keys of the kingdom and the responsibility, even job description, that the church has in terms of, well, discipline and more. And now we're turning our attention to church government. This is a topic that we've talked about before as a church family, if you've been around uh, but it may be new for you. And so, Lord willing, this week and next time, we'll be in Acts 20 together looking at elders. And then after that, we'll be turning to Acts 6 to look at deacons. So that's where we're going. So we're still in the series of ecclesia. It's the Greek word for church. And we're focusing on polity or church government. So with that, I want to read Acts 20, verse 17 down to 27 to set the text before us, though our text goes all the way to verse 38. I'm going to read our text, pray, and then we'll jump into the word. Scripture reads, Now from Miletus, the apostle Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of, of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I test you, testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Well, that's God's word. Let's pause there. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for the portrait that you're giving us here in the book of Acts. This portrait of what it means 
to be faithful pastor elders of a local church. And that faithfulness is revealed to us, indeed modeled to us, through your Apostle Paul. And ultimately, we know that all modeling is simply a modeling of Jesus, putting on display the goodness and greatness of our Savior, and that Jesus is the ultimate great and chief shepherd of the church. So Lord, would you help us not just know, but also apply and embrace your word and what you say about being healthy. And so to that end, as a church, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. In my office, I have a book. The book is called Dangerous Calling. It's, it's one of the best books that I have ever read regarding the nature of being an elder in a church. And you can detect from the title, the perspective of the author, it's a dangerous calling. Uh, when men are set apart to devote themselves to the things of the word, the danger, there's many dangers and pitfalls, not the least of which is becoming so familiar with the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that they just lose their luster. And thereby you begin to tarnish your own soul and more. But what's striking to me about this book is if you turn it over, as is common with books, you have endorsements. And on the back of this book, there's five or six endorsements, this original copy that I have. And the copy that I have that's original is different from all the copies that are published now. All the copies that are published now have different endorsers on the back of the book. Why? Because all of them, to the man, have fallen from ministry since the book was first written. It is a bitter, bitter irony. Bitter irony. Some committed adultery, blew up their ministries, blew up their marriages, blew up their kids, and blew up their churches. And those churches don't exist anymore. Others have deconstructed their faith and denounced the gospel and rejected Jesus Christ. Some had good elders around them who tried to help and expose to them the sins about themselves they couldn't see, and they just jump-shipped and left and avoided the helpful ministry of their fellow elders. Some are just embroiled in scandal. Some had uh, shenanigans with money, secret budgets attached where they were buying motorcycles for themselves and others and, and, and just blew up the church. One uniquely sad story was a, a man who was in an adulterous relationship and had a domineering um, spirit over the staff of the church, but he did submit to his elders. They did establish a restoration program for him. It was going very good for a few years, and then he committed suicide in early COVID. So it's a dangerous calling. And what's so sobering to me in reading that is these were all men, prominent, um, published authors. They're the celebrity preachers. They traveled on the circuit preaching and more. And all of them, in one way or another, some of them are still in ministry because there are still people who would endorse them in their sin and more. But what, what we take a step back is Jesus intends faithful churches to be governed by faithful elders and served by faithful deacons. 
one of the things that we're going to see in this message is that part of that faithfulness, to have faithful elders, it's faithful churches that grow and cultivate faithful elders. So it's not just a, a man making himself that on his own accord as if that were even possible, but it's the soil of the local church that for generations, as the Lord tarries, helps cultivate faithful elders and faithful deacons. And sadly, those men had faithful elders, and some of them just rejected their elders, and others um, hand-selected their own personal tribe of yes-men who just let them do what they wanted. But why is the topic of faithful elders so important? Well, it's because the pattern of Scripture is that as the leaders go, so goes the people. As the leaders go, so goes the church. That's why it's so important. There's more. But in the Old Testament, whenever the priests, whenever the prophets, whenever the kings in the Old Testament, whenever they were faithless, the people always followed suit in their faithlessness. And oftentimes it was a team effort that they were all faithless at the same time. And in the Bible, faithlessness, especially the Old Testament, was not just an outright rejection of God, of an Israelite saying, I'm not an Israelite anymore. No, the faithlessness was not caring, not regarding, not obeying, not fearing God's word and approaching God on God's terms. That's what faithlessness was. You, you search throughout all the prophets in the Old Testament, and what was characteristic, hallmark of Israel was that they liked keeping the things of God that they liked. They liked the rituals. They liked some rituals. They liked some teachings, but not others. And so what they would do is they would look at the surrounding nations who worshipped Baal and Marduk and all the other demon gods. And they would say, well, we really like the licentiousness of this religion, and we really like this aspects of this religion, and so they engaged in the sin of syncretism. They synced the other religions with biblical, their biblical Old Testaments, but they took out the parts of the Old Testament they didn't like, and the parts of God they didn't like, and they added the parts of other religions, and they said, aha, now we have a religion that ha makes us happy, a religion in our own image, because we're wor worshiping a God in our own image. That's what faithlessness was tied to for them. So in the Old Testament, the principle is that as the, as the leaders went, so went the people. And I think it's the same today. The way I've heard it said is this, as the pulpit goes, so goes the elders, so goes the church. And so our aim in this portion of our Ecclesia series is not to say all there is to say about elders, nor to say all there is to say about deacons, but we're looking at, as we put the puzzle piece in, so to speak, how do faithful elders and faithful deacons in faithful churches help promote and protect the faithfulness of faithful local churches? Why did Jesus invent elders and deacons? And so the main idea this week, we will be taking a second pass uh, Lord willing, in Acts 20, next time together, looking at the task of elders. But the main idea this week is this. The Apostle Paul, as he's autobiographical, the Apostle Paul models what it is to be a faithful pastor elder as he models Christ. And what he sets forth in his imperfections, he sets forth for us to look to pray for, guard, and cultivate among us faithful elders. 
So if you're taking notes, the sermon comes in two parts, two points. Here they are. Point number one, faithful churches appoint faithful pastor elders. That's point number one. Point number two, then we'll turn our attention to how Paul models for us. So point number two, the Apostle Paul, a faithful model for faithful pastor elders. Now, each of these two points has four subpoints. So whether you want to call this a two-point sermon or an eight-point sermon, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. Take notes as you like. So point number one, faithful churches appoint faithful pastor elders. If you would, look at me, look with me at verses 17 and 18, and then verse 28. The scripture again reads, Now from Miletus, he, the Apostle Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them a lot of things. Look down to verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. All right, four items from these verses. Number one, we need to establish some context to this amazing moment. The Apostle Paul went out preaching all of Jesus from all of the Bible. He was addicted to the truths of God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the grave. And so his journeys as a missionary took him north and into modern-day Turkey and Greece, and his mission was church planting. And what's so amazing, if we read earlier in the book of Acts, maybe you've read it before, you know this man's history, he was the chief persecutor and killer of the church. So he thought in his service to God, he was serving God by imprisoning, dragging off, and even murdering Christians. And it gave him pleasure in his thinking that he was pleasing God by destroying the so-called sect of Christianity. And then Jesus. And then Jesus knocked him down, blinded him, and spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And this most unthinkable man was converted, and he became a church planter. So Paul, he would travel north and into modern-day Turkey and Greece, and he would preach this gospel. When people believed, he planted churches. That's what missions was, church planting. And when he planted churches in some places, he was able to stay for years, and some places, weeks. It varied. And you can read Acts 13 to 20 to see how Paul did three laps, three missionary laps, that he planted the churches and would go back through to strengthen them and did it again. And so here in Acts 20, he's on his final voyage returning home, and this is one of the few recorded um, church dialogues in the book of Acts. Most of the sermons in Acts are evangelistic, calling people who don't know Jesus to know Jesus and to turn from their sins and turn to Christ. But here, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus. But here's what's interesting to me, and I think it should be to you. At the end of his first church planting journey, he, 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 he went out, got to the final city, and then backtracked. And Acts 14.23 tells us this. Acts 14.23 says, When they, Paul and his team, 
had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So he's cycling back through the churches and he is appointing. He's putting elders in place. There's a parallel text, Titus 1.5. In Titus 1, we have the qualifications for elders. Paul's writing to Titus, an apostolic delegate. And he says to Titus in 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So for our purposes, here's what we need to see. We see that a church exists. A church can exist without elders. It's still a church. The elders don't make the church. The church is the church. A church can exist without elders, but a church is incomplete and unhealthy until it has faithful biblical elders, which I take from Acts 14.23 and Titus 1.5, which I just read. When Paul planted churches, he also patiently sought to install qualified men to the office of elder. So faithful elders, along with faithful deacons, help integrate all that we have looked at the previous 11 weeks as it pertains to the keys of the kingdom and preaching and what more is to come. So on this first sub-point, here's what you need to see. A key feature of a faithful and healthy church is a plurality of faithful elders. The church wasn't done being formed until elders were put in place. The church existed, but it wasn't done until it had elders in place, as we see in Acts 14 and Timothy 1. So it leads to the second subpoint is this, who and what are elders? Now, if you've been around FCF for a while, we have looked at elders in the past. We went through 1 Timothy a couple years ago, and we were in Ephesians also a couple years ago. But we need a refresher because there's a number of us who are visiting or who are now members who weren't here for that. So who and what are elders? In verse 17, notice the grammar. In verse 17, Paul calls for the Ephesian elders to come to him. That's clear. But then in verse 28, it says, he's talking to these people who came to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the question is, which is it? Did Paul call for the elders and then the wrong group of guys come out? And he's like, well, I guess the overseers showed up, and so I guess I'm going to talk to them rather than the elders. No. Elders and overseers, it's not the wrong group. Paul, in Acts 20, uses the words interchangeably. He does the same thing in Titus. So I just read Titus 1.5 a moment ago, appoint elders in every town. But then in Titus 1.7, just a couple of verses later, he says, for an overseer must, and then he goes and gives the qualifications. What does this mean? This means that biblically, in Acts 20 and in Titus 1 and some other passages, 1 Peter 5, elder and overseer are used interchangeably for the same office. And the title overseer, which, you know, we don't use very often, is also translated as bishop. And so there's some church traditions that use 
bishop quite a bit. So you can think bishop also when you hear the word overseer. Plainly, elder and overseer are different terms for the same office. And I would add, I don't have time to develop it, but the only people in the whole Bible, in the New Testament in particular, who were ever commanded or told to shepherd or pastor the flock of God are the elder overseers. No one else ever is. So here's the point, and this is key. There is only one senior office in the local church, not three different offices. There's only one senior office in the local church, which the New Testament interchangeably calls sometimes pastors, sometimes elders, sometimes overseers. So in the Bible, pastors are elders, pastors are bishops, and vice versa. But why is this important? This is critical for a healthy church because they are not describing three different offices with three different job descriptions, with three different jurisdictions of authority. One office, three different interchangeable titles, kind of like the Trinity. Sort of. That sounded modalistic. If you know what I'm talking about, stay with me. If not, just forget what I'm saying. One office, three different interchangeable titles to describe the nature of the office. But primarily, elder is the term that's used. But why is this important? When a church breaks these roles apart, and Scripture does not, and then redefines these roles to do what Scripture does not call them to do or indicate, and gives different levels of authority, you introduce distortion into what the Bible teaches, and distortion typically leads to unhealth and error. Yes, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Yes, he can create good gospel growth despite our faithlessness and error. But we want to be faithful in applying what Jesus says. And so it matters that we don't redefine and invent things that aren't in the Bible. Notice also in verse 17. Not only is it one office, but in verse 17, again, note the grammar. Paul called the elders, plural, of the church singular. Paul did not call archbishops because they didn't exist. Paul did not call bishops as they're used today of overseeing multiple churches. Paul did not call a plurality of elders who were outside the church seeing multiple churches. Paul called the elders plural of one church, the church of Ephesus, to come to him. Paul did not call one guy, a senior pastor who leads as a functional pope, and he didn't call any type of group overseeing any sort of pyramid scheme of churches. He called a group of men from a specific local congregation. Why is this important? You can't govern well if you get who governs wrong. You can't govern well if you get who governs wrong. That's why church government is a key feature of a healthy and faithful church. The name, well, I didn't say the names, but many of the pastors that I delineated at the beginning who were on the back of that book who've all fallen from ministry, their churches grew so large that there was a pyramid scheme of varying levels of elders or different things that they, be, they became unaccountable. 
and became solo icons who could do whatever they wanted with budgets and women and the pulpit and more. And I think that many of them, all of them, maybe started out faithful preaching the gospel and they drifted off the gospel. They drifted away from guarding their own hearts and having the wisdom of a plurality and they became isolated doing what was right in their own eyes. And so a key feature of a faithful church is operating under the governance of a plurality of pastor, elder, overseers. And that leads to the third sub-point. And this is very brief. But look at what Paul does. It says in verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Notice what Paul did not do. Paul could have called the whole congregation to come out and had a final sermon with them, but he didn't do that. He could have called the elders and the deacons to come out, but he didn't do that. He only called the elders to come out. And I think, given the sermon that he gives to them in this passage, highlights the authority and responsibility that Christ assigns to elders in leading the congregation. And fourth and finally, note some of the implications of how these men became pastor elders, pastor overseers. Now, I read a few moments ago from Acts 14 and Titus 1 how the Apostle Paul and Titus appointed elders, but Verse 28 reveals to us something underneath the appointment of elders. Look at verse 28, where he says to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So do you see that? Yes, they were appointed. Paul appointed, Titus appointed, Timothy likely appointed, and more. Barnabas appointed, probably. But here we see Paul saying that underneath, behind, and undergirding, and empowering human appointment is ultimately God himself. Here in verse 28, it's the Holy Spirit who made you overseers. We could jump over to Ephesians 4, where it says that Jesus gifts the church with pastors. We could go to 1 Peter 5, which um, indicates that God the Father appoints elders. So the point is, a local church recognizes who the triune God is gifting to them and is equipped to serve them as a fellow pastor elder of the church. The office itself is a spiritual gift to the church. And because the office ultimately is a spiritual gift, that means that no man can take this to himself. A guy can't just walk in here and say, God told me I am now your elder. You just go like this to him. Out the door. Here's why. The Bible gives us more texture and detail. No man can take it to himself to become an elder. Neither can a congregation, as seems best to them, choose whoever they want. I and we are responsible to discern who the Lord is giving to us. And the danger that we see not just in the West, but around the world now, is that many congregations do what's right in their own eyes when they appoint a man based on his charisma, his oratory ability, his competency, his business acumen, his political skill, 
his tenure at the church or his sense of entitlement or whatever it is. But the question begs then, how does Paul know who to appoint if the Holy Spirit is giving that person, that man, to the office? And related to that, there is no indication at all in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture, that a man is appointed to the office against the congregation's will. Instead, it seems that everyone is in harmony. Well, here, four subpoints. These are sub-subpoints to this point. You're welcome. Drop down menu, drop down menu. How does a local church recognize the Trinity is gifting a man to the office? Four ways, no specific order. Number one, 2 Timothy 2.2. In 2 Timothy 2.2, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in this pastoral epistle to take what Paul taught Timothy and entrust to faithful men who can teach others. You have four generations of what I understand to be elders raising up future elders. So that is to say the elders have a responsibility based on the pastoral epistles, a second, especially 2 Timothy 2.2, that the elders are supposed to test and train future elders to discern if the Holy Spirit, in fact, is gifting that man. That's the first one. In my experience, in mid-sized churches such as ours, the elders often spot a potential future elder before that guy even aspires, which leads to the second of the four, aspiration. That means desires. A man must have an internal desire to not only have the title, but to do the work, and that is key. Being an elder of a church, being a pastor, elder, overseer of a church is not just a voter sitting at a table making decisions and managing people. That's part of it, but it's a really thin slice. To aspire to the office is to aspire to the work of the office regardless of title. Because it's not about titles and prestige. It's about Jesus and his prestige. So a guy is going to aspire. That means that he's going to have this internal compulsion, a gravitational force, not only in knowing Jesus from all the Bible and loving, right, cut him and he bleeds uh, Bible and bleeds gospel. Not only is he going to grow in knowing the word, but he oftentimes, in my experience, gravitates towards and close to the current elders, which goes back to the first point of 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. There's, there's a relationship where the, a guy may not even know that he is being called, and yet he gravitates towards the elders. So he's tested and trained by the elders and discipled by them. He has internal aspiration. Number three, qualification. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which I'll read in a few moments, list characteristics and competencies a man must have to be qualified to the office that if he's not characterized by these things, then a church would be in error to appoint him to the office. So he has to possess both character and competency laid out in those passages. And fourth and finally, affirmation. So he's tested and trained by the elders, discipled by them. He internally aspires. He is qualified. And the affirmation is the church's part. 
Remember, as I said a moment ago, there's no indication that a man was ever appointed to the office of elder against the church's will. So affirmation means that the congregation has already seen and knows and experienced this man's pre-elder type ministry. And so when the elders have discipled this man and are confident to the point to put him before the congregation for the congregation to affirm and vote him in, they can say, totally. I read 1 Timothy 3, and that's exactly what he is like. There's no doubt in my mind. There's no question in my mind and, and more. So this is why, even though Paul and Timothy, they appointed many of those early elders, that's why they could say the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul knew that underneath his discipleship efforts, underneath a man's qualification, undergirding the aspiration, undergirding the congregation's affirmation, the Trinity was at work in all of it. An unhealthy church, by contrast, is not attentive to these things, especially the character qualifications. We live in a world that prides itself on competency without regard to character. Case in point, politics. Right? So we live in a world outside in the walls that they just want someone to be able to do the job and do the job well or make me feel good when you talk publicly or whatever it is without regard to the character. And all the names on the back of that book I mentioned, those men's character had weaknesses in them that they did not bring before the cross of Christ, did not beg the Holy Spirit to change, did not bring to light to their fellow elders and to have their fellow elders pray for them and bring them. Those men all caved under the weight. And they were men who were extremely competent in their public ministry, such that they became superstars. We live in a world that prides itself on competency without regard to character. But in the world of the Bible, the way that God intends the world to work is that character always precedes performance. In a faithful church, character eclipses competency. Now, please don't mishear that to say that competency doesn't matter. It does. You need to have competent overseers of the church, competent knowers and communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ from all the Bible. So don't mishear me saying that competency doesn't matter. It does. You can reread Acts 20 to see the competency of Paul. But the point is, character is primary. Character is primary because as the elders go, so goes the church. And what the elders are like, we will become like down the road. So good company or bad company. And what we're all after is this, magnifying Jesus Christ and being like him in his character, being fashioned to the image of our Savior. So competency without character leads to a crash of the church. Again, just consider the many, many sad downfalls and church implosions of the last decade. Decade alone. But why does it matter then if knowing that pastor elder overseers are one and the same office? And only the one leadership office of the church. Why does it matter knowing that elders exist as a plurality? 
Why does it matter that the evidence the Holy Spirit is gifting a man to the office includes training by current elders, qualification, aspiration, and affirmation? It matters because that's how Jesus wants his church to be governed. That's why. It matters because that's how Jesus has attached blessing. Now, we can't command God's blessing, but we can be obedient to faithfulness where Jesus has promised blessing. And we want to be faithful because Jesus has designed his church to work best when all of our eyes and our hearts are fixated on him and wanting to be like him and helping each other know and follow Jesus. And Jesus wants under-shepherds who are like mirrors of Jesus, that when you spend time with an elder, you get a better concept of what Jesus is like because of spending time with a man. A church that places unqualified men in the office has already sown the seed of its own unhealth, if not downfall. Now, don't mishear me. We'll see this in a few moments. We are not installing Jesus into the office. We're installing men who have remaining sin, imperfect knowledge, in the middle of their own sanctification, but nonetheless are men who meet these characteristics and qualifications. You see, Jesus cares about his sheep. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for you. It matters to Jesus who represents Jesus. We all represent Jesus, but Jesus puts a unique stamp of representation on the under-shepherds, the pastors of the church. And so it's really important to him. And that's why pastors will come under stricter judgment on the last day. But in practice then, what does a faithful pastor, elder, overseer look like? Meaning, what does it look like for an imperfect man with remaining sin in the middle of a sanctification? What does it look like for a guy like that to serve as a faithful shepherd over the church? For that, we move to the second point and we look to Paul as a model. As Paul looks to Jesus and represents Jesus, Paul now will model for us what we should get a sense of what faithful elders look like. And so here's point number two, four ways that Paul was a faithful model. Way number one, Paul models Christ's character. Just listen to these autobiographical snippets. Verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Or, or down to verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul's words there in verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you. Paul lived among them like a shepherd among the sheep. Here's what this means. No digital church. No multi-site campuses. And no screen preachers. The word ecclesia means physical gathering. And here, Paul's central feature, stake in his ministry, he says, as you yourselves know how I lived among you, the sheep could touch the shepherd, and the shepherd the sheep. 
The people could look him in the eye. They could cry together. They could laugh together. They knew each other. Now, undoubtedly, there was varying degrees of relationships. I mean, it's the city of Ephesus. So he wasn't best friends with everybody, so to speak. But that he could say this, and none of them would say, no, you didn't. You didn't live among us. No, he did. He lived among them. The people could look in him in the eye. They could clasp his shoulder. And more than that, his life was on display. He walked among them. He, he, we see that he was ministered publicly by day and house by house by night. His life was on display. They heard of his faith, and they saw his faith had hands and feet. When he says, you know how I lived among you, Paul displayed what he wrote to Titus and Timothy. For example, Titus 1, we'll jump right in kind of in the middle of it, verses 6 or 9. Here's the qualifications Paul gives of what an elder is supposed to be like. And he's describing himself, and he's describing Jesus, of whom we're supposed to all be like. For example, jumping right in verse 6 of Titus 1. If anyone is above reproach, this is who Titus is supposed to appoint. Remember, appoint elders. This is verse 5 in every town. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are faithful, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And the people of Ephesus could say, yes, that's Paul. When we think of Paul, we think of a man like that. Yes, Paul's not perfect, but this is what we know him to be like, a man who models Jesus. And when we're by Paul, when we're near him, we get more of Jesus. Paul's character was a faithful display of a faithful elder who lived among his fellow sheep. And I take an implication of that is that when we, for example, this evening as a membership, vote on reinstalling or reappointing or reaffirming elders and deacons for the next year, you need to think through about your elders and your deacons. Of, of, do they have that testimony of Christ? Do they live among us? Do you know us to be this? Do you know our character on display? And more. Paul's character was a faithful display, and it takes a church. A faithful church grows faithful elders, who faithful elders in churn help grow a faithful church, and this is, it's an echo chamber of Christ-likeness. Number two, Paul models hard work and generosity. Look at verses 33 to 35. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So not only from his character, but out of his character, Paul put his hand to the plow and he labored. Not only on this missionary journey providing for himself, but his companions. The point here is the, the hardworking posture of Paul's heart at the end of verse 35. Quoting Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Yes, the book of Hebrews refers to elders as the leaders of the church. Calls the church to obey and submit to them. 
Yes, elders have the authority to exercise oversight of the church, to command, to teach, and to rebuke, but not in the ways of the world, not lording over people. The paradox of eldership is the paradox of Christ, is the paradox of Christianity. Eldership comes with sleeves rolled up and a towel around its waist to do menial tasks to love Christ's people, as it does for deacons, as it does for all of us. Paul models the hard work and generosity of faithful elders. That's, that's why I said earlier that a man aspires to the work of an elder, not just the title of an office. If he's not doing the job, he's not qualified to the ministry. The Holy Spirit is not calling him to the office. Paul was hospitable and he provided and cared for others. Paul labored in the word for the sake of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And one thing that I thank God for is that this church family has a legacy of faithful pastors in our past history. And I think right now, that if you look at our elders, if you look at Andy and Bo and Scott, how much those men labor, so much behind the scenes, there's so much that you don't see on behalf of this church, they are a tremendous blessing to us. And we have five remaining elders who have retired, but now among us, who are legacies of the faithful ministry and are still among us. And you need to pray for your current elders, your past elders, and by God's grace, should Jesus tarry, the future elders sitting in this room who don't even know they aspire yet, who we will be handing the torch to in generations to come. Pray for your elders and be the faithful church to be the soil from which these men can arise and then also help us be healthy and more. And that leads then to the third sub-point. Not only Paul's character, not only his hard work, but Paul models the faithful message of faithful elders. Look, for example, at verses 20 and 21. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his message. Or down in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul shows that the work of a faithful elder is the work of the word. The work of the word, all of Christ from all of scripture is what the work of a faithful pastor, elder, overseer is. We're not therapists. We're not psychologists. We're not CEOs. We're not business leaders. We are shepherds of Jesus with the apostolic word of Jesus that we give to you. This is our crook and staff. And our authority comes from faithfulness to Christ in his word and giving Christ from his word to you. The work of an elder is the work of a word, of the word. And so when you come to a future elder to install him or to renominate this evening, you are renominating or nominating or growing future elders who are men of the word, who you cut, they bleed Bible, they speak with gospel accents. Corinthians, Paul said that we don't preach ourselves, but Christ and him crucified. 
Paul called everyone everywhere to repent of their sins against God, to believe in the Lord Jesus that he preached from all of the Bible. Paul models that an elder must be competent to preach all of Christ from all of Scripture while drawing a line of repentance in the sand, declaring that we must serve God on God's terms and know God on God's terms, not our own whims and imaginations. So it's a message. And the message is, maybe you here this morning don't yet know Christ. You have not yet repented. What does that word even mean? It means a change of mind, which leads to a change of heart and change of life. It means to stop going the direction, to stop embracing the ideologies and philosophies and politics of the world, and to believe what God says. You are a sinner worthy of hell, but God loves us and sent his son Jesus to live in our place, die on our place, and rise in our place. And when you turn from your old ways of thinking and living and turn to the truth of Jesus and, and, and trust yourself to him, by grace through faith, you're saved. And so right now, even from his word, Jesus is inviting you, won't you repent? Won't you turn to Jesus and have faith in him? But the work of a pastor, elder, is to continue to have the record skip on this message every time you're, you're together, no matter what text you are in Scripture, faithfully exegeting the text to the cross of Christ. Faithful elders, then, are Christ-centered, Christ-proclaiming men. If the elder is not Christ-centered and does not proclaim Christ, don't make him an elder. And lastly, Paul models a fierce focus on Christ himself. Verse 19, listen to what he says about Jesus and his relationship to Jesus. Serving the Lord with all humility, tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Or down to verse 24, here, here's the banner. I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Or even, as they had tears in their eyes, verse 32, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's not just Paul's character. It's not just Paul's hard work. And it's not just even his message. You see, for Paul, Jesus was not merely a doctrine, an ivory tower theological idea. He was the living, breathing God-man, ascended into heaven. Jesus was not only the sum and substance of Paul's message. Jesus was the sum and substance of Paul's life. And when Paul was around other people, and Paul wanted Jesus to be the sum and substance of his life, guess what happened to the people around him? Jesus increasingly became the sum and substance of their life. Why does Jesus care about having faithful under-shepherds in the church? So that we could, in some small way, show the sum and substance of our lives as Jesus 
to encourage us to all have the same reality because this ought to be true of everyone who names the name of Christ. That the message of our life, whether you're at work or school, managing your home, retired, whatever you do, that the banner of your life is that you live and proclaim Christ in him crucified. And the sum and substance of your life is Jesus himself. Not ideas about Jesus, but you have to have right ideas about Jesus. But he's not just a doctrine. He is the God-man, second person of the Trinity. So at the end of the day, faithful elders are men who, after you spend time with them, you don't just know more about Jesus, but you have more of Jesus himself. Paul was riveted by Jesus, God in the flesh, come to redeem and rescue lost sinners so that they might follow him in his word. Paul could never get over the fact that he was once a Christian killer and imprisoner, now loved by this Savior and commissioned by Jesus to go write a lot of the Bible. He was riveted that Jesus conquered Satan, sin, death, and the curse of the law. Paul could not get over the unbelievable yet truly believable truth that Jesus took Paul's sins on the cross and bled for him to wash away Paul's sins. There was nothing Paul had to do except believe and receive the free gift of this message of salvation. He loved that message because he loved his Savior. He never got over the fact that God loved him, chose him before the foundation of the earth, brought him out of darkness and into light, from death to life. Paul was riveted by the impenetrable wisdom of Christ and his word, impossible to improve upon, that this is the truth contained. Paul lived for his Savior with a singular focus that the whole of his life was for Jesus. That, my friends, is the heart of a faithful elder. And there ought to be no mistake about it, no doubt about it, because this is how Jesus intends all of us to be. And we need to have men who, like 1 Corinthians 11, 1, say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Faithful pastor elders are like moons that reflect the glory of the sun. It is not us, but it is Christ in us, Christ through us, Christ above us, Christ for all of us. Under shepherds who are to collectively model the true shepherd. As the elders go, so goes the church. You need to put men in place and guard men who will help all of us have this banner over our life. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That should hang over all of our heads with a smile on our faces, a prayer in our hearts, and linked arms striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace that you give to us that just flows beyond measure from Emmanuel's veins. We thank you for the unbelievably treasurable gift of yourself in your spirit to indwell us and seal us. We thank you, O Lord, for your grace we thank you, O oh Lord, that in your wisdom you have not left us to do what's right in our own eyes, but that as faithful churches 
you called us to appoint faithful elders. Let each one of us be found faithful before you, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I invite you to